Today's reading is Luke chapter 4, beginning at verse 1, and you'll find this on page 1030 of the Church Bibles. Luke chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that through your word you pour your life out to us in a really particular way. Would you continue to shine your light into our lives? In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, actually, I'm just going to look at a passage. I'm not going to specifically uh, talk about belonging in general, but there's so many overlaps um, in it as well. Uh, There's lots of challenge in here. You probably don't need reminding that if you've ever looked at different adverts that are on television or different marketeers, that actually they use the the word temptation to, well, tempt us. They use the word temptation to tempt us. Here's an advert for Magnum Temptation Chocolate. Magnum Temptation is taking indulgence to the next level, said the marketers. Launched for pleasure-seeking customers, the Magnum Temptation Chocolate, which in fairness I did try and find to bring along with me to see if I could tempt you this morning, but I actually didn't manage to get it in time uh, to actually get here, but that's another story. Um, But actually the the marketeers went on to say this, 
It goes on to talk about chunks of white chocolate and brownie pieces complementing the creamy chocolate centre, sumptuous chocolate sauce and thick Belgian chocolate shell. Would you like me to keep going on, what the marketer said? So I'm going to keep going, you know, and then eventually I'll, I've got some in behind in the prayer room, I'll bring it all out, and then we're done for the morning. Um, well, how about this? The TV show in America called Temptation Island. Here's a description of the show Temptation Island. Four couples, each of them strains in their relationship, are sent to a Caribbean island. They're separated by gender and left for two weeks in the company of a dozen very attractive members of the opposite sex. Will the couples remain faithful to each other? Or will island instincts take over? Highbrow television. But temptation sells. Temptation, as those who know your Bible well, is a major theme in the Bible. There's a real but unequal battle between good and evil. And we, we human beings are going to have to choose. We're going to have to make choices about whether we'll choose to resist temptation and stay faithful to God, or we give in. That's the choice. That's the essence of the around temptation. So those of you who know, we've got Adam and Eve and the story uh, right at the beginning of the Bible is a classic story of temptation and the elements of a temptation story. Got King David with Bathsheba and also looking to see, uh, to cover up his um, failure by trying to see someone else killed. We see Judas tempted by pieces of silver We see people tempted by false worship, by self-preservation. We see temptation all through the biblical narrative and all through all sorts of stories, and we see it in the church too. In the Lord's Prayer, what does the Lord's Prayer encourage us to? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. In reading about it, this is what one church leader recently wrote. He said this, how we as individuals and how we as a church corporate respond to temptation determines whether we will fill our God-given purpose as individuals or as a church. I wonder whether you'd state it as strongly as that for your own life or for the church's life. Why does he say that? Why does this church leader say that? Because God has called his people to live a life that's different from the rest of the world, from the idols and from the rest of all the the gods of this world with a small g. And one of the choices and the challenges each of us face is this. Do we really want to be different from the whole culture of the world that we're born into, we get used to and live as part of? I mean, do we really want to be different from the world? Or actually, is that just a bit difficult? What do I mean for that to say for us as a church? Here's an example. A fighting, divided, split church literally has nothing to say or nothing to give to a fighting, divided, split, and violent world. We're called to be good news in all its different ways. 
In Luke, at the beginning of the passage that you've got in front of you, in verses 1 and 2, it says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. Now, that seems to me fairly obvious after 40 days of fasting. I don't know about you, in the wilderness, that actually Jesus was hungry of that. One of the things we can see in this passage is this, is that one of the, the, the theme of temptation at the heart of temptation, and one of the things we see in this text is this, is that temptation will often be at its strongest when we're at the highest point and when we're at the lowest point in our life. Jesus, remember, is in the desert. A desert is a place of dryness, emptiness, where it's a place of exhaustion and weariness, a place of being burnt out, and where people find themselves isolated and alone. When I think about what the desert looked like, so what a desert experience is like, I think it's marked by somebody who does too much giving out in their life. You may be caring for a relative or a friend or a child or somebody sick, and you're just that day-to-day exhaustion of giving out, of giving out, of giving out, and of just being too busy. All work no Sabbath, no Sabbath, no rest. And when we're depleted, when we're at the end, when we're too tired and too exhausted, you can bet the tempter will come into our ear, come knocking on our door to tempt us into different places and with different things. Conversely, temptation often arises when we're at our highest point too. Here, right before Jesus is led into the desert to be tempted Jesus, as Yen preached a couple of weeks ago, had this incredible experience in his own baptism. Holy Spirit falling on Jesus, doves like a dove, beautiful words of affirmation from his Father. You are my son, whom I love. In you I am well pleased. You are my son, whom I love. In you I am well pleased. Beautiful words of affirmation from his Father. And then temptation comes. A great mountain experience of God, great success in your career, an amazing breakthrough in your family often leaves us vulnerable to temptation. Why? Why do those mountaintop experiences often lead us to uh, open, particularly open temptation? Because success often leads us to the place where we think that success is all due to us and nothing due to the provision from the hand of God. When we're successful, we think actually our temptation is to say, Lord, it's me, it's my gifts. I'm so clever, I'm so good, I'm so gifted, I'm so able. I don't need God. I don't need God. I don't need God. I don't need all his provision. See, a combination of good genes combination of the input of your parents, hundreds of people at school, people in your life, whether it's university, the number of books you've read and the various other things that you've read, none of which you have done a jot for. Every person who's standing here who's been successful in this world is literally standing on millions and probably billions of other people who've gone ahead of them. And all of those are held up by the hand of God. All of them held up by the hand of God. 
So if you're on the mountaintop or you're in the deepest valley, this morning I'd say to you, if you're in one of those places, be careful. Be careful. Because actually you find yourself in a bit of a spiritual danger zone. It's a time to watch and pray and actually ask others to pray for you so that you won't fall into temptation. So, well, why does Jesus lead us into the desert? Why does the Holy Spirit lead Jesus into the desert in this passage? Why does Jesus lead me, you, the people of God, through see it through Scripture? Throughout biblical history, the desert has been a place where God prepares his people for a key task. It's a place of preparation. The desert is a place of being stripped of all of all the things that we think are incredibly important, that we fill our lives with, the satisfactions that we pound into our lives, that we think are the answer to our lives. And the desert strips us of those things. It takes away the things we fill our souls with, we fill our lives with that think that that will be the thing that gives me meaning, that gives me purpose, gives me pleasure, gives me fulfillment. Instead of relying on Christ and the riches that he brings to our lives and the gift we have in one another in the church. So what does that mean for us? Maybe all the entertainment that we fill our lives with, all the social media that we we spend our lives looking at, all the unnecessary spending that we, we fill our lives with too, the amount of home decorating or polishing of our car or whatever else it is or the amount of holiday planning we do. The desert is a place where we'll strip all that away and say, who are you? Who are you? See, because in the desert, God exposes all the junk, all the secondary stuff that you've, you've put into your life. And God wants to cut away all those things from your life. He wants to clean us up. And he wants to get us ready for what he wants to do in us and through us. It's a place of great preparation in the desert. It's also a place in Scripture where you see the desert is also a place not just where we're stripped away, but God leads us back to our first love. We see it through Scripture. For God leads us back to our first love, the love above all other loves. It's a place of passion for God is renewed in the desert. And when the people of God wander away from God, God brings them out into the wilderness again, into the desert again, they can be renewed in finding and rediscovering their first love. I wonder this morning, does your first love need rekindling? I know in the church season, in the church times, we often get to a time of Lent, and that's traditionally a place where we try and strip things back consciously. But maybe there are things where you know you're being tempted constantly and you need to come back to your first love and make Jesus the priority in your life. So what are the temptations that Jesus faced? We're going to look at the three of them quickly as I read through the three temptations as Jane read through them. You'll, you'll know them and many of you will recognize them very well. But at heart, they're all about needs. They're about needs. My needs, my needs, my needs, my needs, my needs. I need. And in verses one and four, we see the first. In the first temptation, the tempter calls into question God's provision and his care for Jesus. The tempter will come to you and say, surely God knows what you need. God knows what you need to lead a happy life. 
And we're talking about the basic level of a happy life here. We're not talking about Ferrari. We're not talking about all the top-end stuff. We're talking about your basic needs need to be met. You're dying out here, Jesus, in the desert. God's not feeding you. He's not feeding you well enough. Do you know what you need to do, Jesus? Take control of your life. You know, you need to get in control of your life and do something. You can't trust God to provide. So you take control. Take control. Here's a temptation. The whisper comes into yours or my ear. Do you know God knows what you need this morning? You've told God maybe, if you're a prayer, you may have told God a thousand times what you think you need this morning. You need a healing. You need a husband. You need God to intervene in a marriage that's very broken. You need him to save your son or your spouse or a member of your family or a colleague who you've been desperately praying for for literally decades. You need a job. The right job isn't coming. It's constant frustration in your work. God, you know what I need. I can't can't live unless, God, you answer this prayer and you do that one thing. And if you don't do that one thing, God, I guess I suppose I may as well just take control of my life back over. To be honest, I'm better at running, looking after my needs than you are, God. I run life on my own terms, thanks. Have you ever felt that way? I wonder whether you've ever felt that way. And Jesus says to the tempter, he says this, don't try and confuse me about what my needs are. What I need to live a happy, a fulfilled, a satisfied and a whole and peaceful life is to be with God, to be near him, to do his will and to serve him wholeheartedly. And each of us face that same temptation for us in the desert. You know, when we find ourselves in a place where we know there are big holes in our life, you know, we don't feel satisfied, we feel uncomfortable, we know we're pretty empty, and you're begging God to fill that hole in a specific way. And you can meet that same temptation by saying the same thing that Jesus essentially said, which is this, don't try and confuse me about what I really need. And I need one thing to live a whole satisfied and peaceful life in the world. I need to be with God and near God and to do his will and to serve his purposes and for his glory. And you know what? That means I'm going to have to trust God for my food, for the turnaround of a loved one, for a healing that I desire. But my really need, my deepest need when it comes to it, is to be with God and to do his will. So in verses 5 to 8, we see uh, the second temptation. The enemy comes along and says, you can't trust God to meet your needs. I mean, look at you. You can't trust this, this verse that says, God will supply all your needs in Christ Jesus. Just look at you. Look at your life. It's not a symptom. It doesn't show the evidence of God's provision for you. And so what Satan comes along to do is this, in this particular temptation is this. He says this. He says, cut corners with me. Cut corners. That's what you really need to do. He comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't it really be great if you were ruler of this world? I'll give you the whole world, Jesus. I'll give you the whole world. Then you will be able to go out and fix things and do things properly. 
You'll be able to end suffering when you're in charge. And you don't have to watch people literally starve to death. You'll be able to feed people and do good to people. Jesus, you know, Jesus, you hate watching mothers weep as they can't feed their babies. You know you hate to see the suffering, the starving. I'll give you the whole world, Jesus. I'll give you the whole world and you can go and fix it. This is a good thing. The tempter comes to Jesus. This is what you already want to do, Jesus. This is at the bottom of your heart's desire anyway. This is your destiny, Jesus. All you need to do, Jesus, for that to happen, to fulfill your destiny, is bow the knee to me. Bow the knee to me. No big deal. Just bow down. Just think of the difference you'll be able to make if you're in charge, if you cut this one corner. If you'll just bow the knee to me now, it will all happen. Cutting corners, compromising, bend the truth just a smidgen. We'll get this done, Jesus. Bow the knee. And of course, what we know, what makes this particularly powerful in this temptation is this. God already had a plan for Jesus to be ruler of the world. But he had a time and a place and a way for that to happen through suffering and ultimately through the cross. Satan says, don't worry about that, Jesus. Here's a different way to get there. Here's a shortcut. Bow the knee to me. For us, each of us, place maybe some of those challenges at the minute in our own lives. God knows you need a job. You desperately need a job. So the temptation, lie on your CV. Pretend you've had skills and experiences that really you've not had. Don't succeed in God's time and in God's way in your career. Bend the truth. Talk to clients in a particular way. Play the game. Work the system. Kiss up to the right people in your work so that you get all the things you want. You know that's the way it is. You know that's what works. Just bend the knee. Jesus wouldn't bend the knee to Satan for the whole world. We're tempted to bend the knee for a stranger in a coffee shop or someone on a train to think well of us. That's how easily we're tempted. The third temptation we see in verses 9 to 12. And again, it's about needs, my needs, my needs. Do you know, I need proof that God will provide and protect me. What's going on here, we see? Here's the deal. Every time some tragedy occurs and some time we see something terrible on the news, we see a terrorist attack or we see some bru- something brutal, what do we hear? How does, why does God allow this? Why does God allow this? Why didn't God do something to stop it? It's very clear that we, as human beings, we have the freedom to hurt and damage other people. We can damage people physically, we can damage people emotionally, we can damage people spiritually, and we can damage people um, uh, mentally too. We can choose to abandon people. We can choose to betray people. We can choose to slander people and their reputation to speak badly of them about who they are and their character. 
And at the heart of this third temptation, you could say that Jesus is being tempted and ties to limit the freedom of men and women and to force people to believe. Force people to believe. Some of you who are um, very well read will know in the 19th century, the Russian author named Dostoevsky wrote one of the great novels ever written called The Brothers Karamov. And in The Brothers Karamazov, this agnostic brother Ivan writes a story of the Grand Inquisitor. And the Grand Inquisitor is set back in the 16th century during the Spanish Inquisition. It's in the city of Seville in Spain. In the poem, a disguised Jesus visits a city where daily people are being burned at the stake. And the Grand Inquisitor recognizes Jesus and he has him thrown into prison. And there the two, the Grand Inquisitor and Jesus, meet in a scene that's remnant, that resembles this in Luke 4. And here's what the Grand Inquisitor says to Jesus. Jesus, you turn down the three greatest powers at your disposal. You turn down miracle, turning loaves into bread, turning loaves from, into bread. You turn down mystery, jumping, up, jumping off the pinnacle of the temple and being caught in the air. You turn down authority, ruling with a rod of iron over the kingdoms of this world. Why did you not perform miracles, Jesus, on demand? Why do you take up Satan's offer of authority and power? Don't you understand that what people want is a refutable proof that God exists? Now, what people want is to be, and so we can establish that beyond belief. And there's a line in the book in the response that goes like this. Instead of taking possession of men's freedom, Jesus, you increased it and burdened the spiritual kingdom of, of humankind with suffering forever. You desired men's free love, that we should follow you freely, enticed and taken captive by you. Why is that so important here in this temptation? Because the worst systems in the history of the world work by compulsion. Fascism, communism, totalitarianism, terrorism. World religions at their worst will force people to follow them or kill them. In other words, what Satan was offering Jesus in the temptation in the desert was a power to compel people to believe. God, be so overwhelming that the whole world will literally fall to its knees. Why is there so much ambiguity? And we still want that from God, don't we? Did God do something so obvious that I can't help but believe? But Jesus refused to dazzle, refused to coerce belief in others, and he refused to rule the nations with a rod of iron. Instead, up until this very moment, Jesus gives us freedom. He presents us with a choice, a stark choice in the desert, to freely voluntarily and willingly throw in a lot with Jesus and to follow him, to trust him, to give our lives to him, to love him completely in an in uncompelled free choice or to throw our lot in with the devil. So how do we overcome 
the temptation. How does Jesus overcome temptation? I'm just going to finish by mentioning a few things. Suggest a few things that we can do today as part of overcoming temptation. The first is, whatever is going on in your life right now, whatever the great temptations in, the, in your life right now, is the opportunity to do something about it is now. If you know you're being tempted in specific ways and it's habitual and it's challenging and it's difficult, the opportunity is to obey God today, now. It's not, I'll sort it out next week or next month or next year. God calls us to follow him, to trust him and to do something about it today. And that's what the Holy Spirit asks us today. Will you obey me today? Will you obey me in this moment? Will you choose me in this moment? Can, I, can for example, I don't know what it is you're facing, whether it's you know, how we speak to each other, it's how you spend your time, what it is you do with all the stuff you've got. And the question is, will you obey me now? And then, will you obey me in four hours' time? And when you get to this evening, will you obey me uh, this evening? It's not... Two months' time, next year, it starts by making some choices. Today it's about taking one step, then another step, then another step with Jesus, then another step, rather than hoping that I'll get to the back of the church in two years' time. It's taking a step of faith and a step of obedience today. Can you obey God right now? Secondly, the other thing would be just to take some time to slow down and think. C.S. Lewis um, um, wrote in his famous book on temptation, The Screwtape Letters, uh, this is what he wrote in The Screwtape Letters. He said that the devil's tactic in temptation is primarily not to insert bad thoughts into your mind, but rather to prevent the good thoughts from entering your mind that God wants for you. Rather, Satan keeps you from thinking about the things you need to think about you want to triumph over temptation in your life, just slow down and start to think. Ask yourself, whatever it is that is your temptation, or something that you know you're challenged to to do this, will I feel better about myself afterwards or worse? Will I be closer to God after I yield to temptation or worse? Will I fulfill the vision God has for my life or for this church or not? See, after the temporary satisfaction passes, after the food is consumed, that's one of my temptations, after you're tempted maybe to have a relationship that you shouldn't be in, is there any possible way that this could end happily or well if I'm self-destructing again? Thirdly, uh, you'll know, and those of you who have a certain tradition with the Bible know that I haven't yet talked about the Word of God. Jesus responds to Satan in all three with the Word of God. The Word of God is one of your weapons. It means if you want to overcome temptation, you need to get to know it. Not every single verse in the Bible, but you need to start to become familiar with it know how to use it when you need it to be 
be able to get alongside it and to use it and study it. It clears up the confusion in our minds about what we need and what God wants for our lives and God's willingness to meet our needs. We need the truths of Scripture constantly to renew our minds, to renew our lives, to renew our hearts and to renew our wills. That's what Scripture does. And for me, if I think about there's some passages of Scripture that are actually ingrained in me because I've had to face up to certain temptations. There's passages of Scripture that I've just held on to again and again and again. So I'll give you one when I was a teenager. Galatians 2.20 If anybody's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. So when I sit there on a Sunday morning, I sit there as a teenager and think, am I a real Christian? Am I a proper Christian? Is God true to his promises? I keep coming back to that promise that I am a new creation in putting my trust in Jesus. That I may have these feelings, and these doubts, but just by meditating on that one verse, again, there are others too. You've got to find some of those verses for your own life. Some of those things for your own life where you use the word of God as the, as the weapon for your own life, the own temptations that you face and you're challenged with. And finally, we need to allow other people to strengthen us. I've said it again and again and again, we don't do well in isolation. We don't do well in isolation. We weren't created, we were created for relationship by a God of, a Trinitarian God who is in relationship. That's why I constantly talk about small groups, because actually it's about being in relationship with other people, journeying together, supporting each other, being prayed for for each other. And if you're struggling with temptation, if you're struggling to triumph in a particular way in your life, if you keep succumbing, you need to find other people who will support you, pray for you, encourage you, speak to you when you're finding it troubling and dark. Find some people. Or we can try and help you find some people that you can walk with to help you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you afresh this morning that actually an incredibly challenging passage at this key moment in Jesus' life as he faced the temptations in a place of barrenness and dryness and darkness. Would you wake us up when you enlighten us? Would you show us afresh what you've given us? That in Jesus, once and for all, death was put to death. Sin was broken. Eternity with you was now part of a Christian's birthright. Father, thank you that we don't worship a God who is uninterested, doesn't want to get involved in the struggles and battles and temptations each one of us are facing this morning. There may be many of you this morning who are sat there, do you know, I'm, I feel like giving up. And God would come, want to come to you again this morning and say, let's draw alongside each other, let's encourage each other. Hold on to my word. Listen to me. Take a step with me today in my walk with God. Father, thank you. Would you come, Holy Spirit, would you come afresh upon us? Would you strengthen us as a body, as a whole body? Would you help us grow into who you've made us be. And would you help us use 
all that you've given us, the life that you pour out for us by your Spirit to live for you this week. In the power of the Spirit and walking with one another. In Jesus' name, amen.